We're no. snorting cap rates and shooting up cash flow <laughs> here at Shield Junkie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome back to the Deal Junkie Show. I'm Gabe Johansson. I'm here with Trevor Howard, Mike Nuss, and Dane McKinney. Uh, today, we are going to talk about economics. Yeah, economics. we got oh, yeah. macro Mike. Here. Oh, yeah. Most important time in the ever history of our planet. Our speaker. Ever macro. important history of our planet economics. This sounds deep. Okay, so we're going to spend a little bit of time with our ex local expert here, Mike Nuss. Talking about economics, I'm going to pass the mic to Dane to lead yeah. the charge on this. Let's. I'm not smart enough to ask even the right questions, so we're going to let Dane lead the charge. Here. I'm just quoting an article. What's the homework <laughs> I didn't read? The homework you didn't read is from CoStar News. Oh, Co thank you, Gabe. Co they're good. Uh, That's a good. They're good data. They are good. I like CoStar. They are good. Second um, largest data holder in the globe outside of the government. Wow. Really? No wonder wow. they charge me so much money. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Just like the government. <laughs> this episode's fun. Maybe we should hold SMR more data. Let's really leave right now and go get some more data. They've got more planes than Boeing. Not really. Oh, I was trying to process what that even meant. Um, That's the sales pitch. When the salesman comes in, and we've got these planes and they fly over and they take aerial photos and you get real-time data. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the sales pitch. Have you heard about... Black they have Rock a web page showing their new plane. Really? That's the sales pitch. Oh. Yeah. Okay, we can move on. Let's get to economics. Okay, let's get to economics. Yeah. Great news. <laughs> the Fed declares interest rates have reached their peak. Obviously, you knew this was coming months in advance. But for the rest of us, <laughs> Mere more. we weren't sure. We weren't sure. Um, including, seems like, the secondary market. Because <laughs> rates just started to. Yeah, my drop. favorite comment lately is the markets should just watch my Facebook page and they would know. <laughs> That's uh, they would know. So if you're not, if you're listening and you don't follow Mike Nuss's fake page, Facebook page, you definitely want to follow so, Mike's oh, Facebook page. Well, Mike, real yeah. quick on that. Um, we're friends on Facebook, but you won't follow me back on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> he's too old for Instagram. I, 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 I even know that's he's, for, he's on there. That's for like pictures God. of your hike and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Look that's at what him. he's posting. He's, he's reading going, economics books. He's not on a hike. I, I even unfollowed <laughs> him and refollowed him. So he'd Did get you the really? notification. <laughs> he still didn't follow me back, but you followed all, all our other friends. I haven't. So. No. No, have I? That's so funny. This I is awkward. Know. I don't even know how to follow. It's, 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 it's right, <laughs> but anyway, economics. Yeah, yeah. economics. Yeah, Fed. They so we can start peak. setting the stage. Quite yeah, a bit. please. So I think do. a lot. So obviously, the Fed changed. They pivoted in March of 2022. November mm -hmm. of 21, they said they're going to do this. And like mm -hmm. in the summer of 2022, a lot of things changed. And kind of the same hap thing happened in 2023. And and I think what it got really clear in 2023 was in June or July. And and the 10-year um, yield was approaching 5%. It's like 4.8, 4.7%. And Powell came out and said, I think the, the bond market's doing our job for us. And that was the first time I really saw like, Okay, the Fed's now starting to kind of capitulate with 
considering a change. And I think what everyone thinks of the word pivot, and I, I had one post was like, pivot was the most overused word of 2023. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is the Fed doesn't pivot. Like the Fed doesn't say we're raising rates today, we're going to lower them tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And if you look back since, I think it's the, I think it's since the dot-com crash, you can literally see, and it's even before that, it's in the 90s, it was that recession in the early 90s. But you can see they bring, they they change rates, they keep them flat, they change rates, they keep them flat. And, and mm -hmm. it's just, that's their pattern. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we're obsessed, the markets are obsessed with this pivot. And the entire time the Fed's been saying, this is what we want, this is what we want. Mm -hmm. We're getting there, but we're not there. And they also changed their the way they look at data in August of 2020. And so for me, it's been really clear. The Fed wants data. They It's going in the direction they want it to. It's just not there. And so when the Fed said that the when Powell came out last summer and said the bond market's doing our job for us, meaning borrowing rates for the government are so high, the yield curve is so high, it's already slowing down borrowing, slowing down economic activity. So regardless of what they do with rates, the markets themselves have put the brakes on, right? And so if you think of how it worked, the Fed's Early on in March 2022, they went really fast, 0 0.75, 0 0.75, 0 0.75, and the bond market got out ahead of it. The Fed caught up. Summer of 2022, there was some dovish speak from the Fed. Bond market started going crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Fed from July, August, September, October, and November went on this assault of the markets in 2022. And it was... Uh, Yields to come back down. Interest rates got back to 5% like on the first day of August. And then it was um, hawkish talk, hawkish talk, hawkish talk. So every opportunity a Fed president had to get on the news, it was, we're not cutting rates, we're increasing rates, we're increasing rates. And it was a very hawkish tone. And then they went to Jackson Hole, came out of that very hawkish. And so everything was really, really hawkish. And even in December of 2022, the market started talking about a, a decline a cut in rates mm -hmm. in early 2023 and, mm -hmm. and and at that time it made absolutely no sense mm -hmm. based on what they were saying what they said they want to be um and then we had a really strong job to report in january 2023 500,000, and then like the market just stopped and so we had this rally at the beginning of 2023 and then things slowed down we kind of went back towards this recessionary thing and we've had this stuff going back and forth but um in in the summer of 23 when powell said the bond market's doing the job for us you know, we were at what 4.9% on the 10 year yield. And I went to Facebook and said, the Fed won't allow yields to get over 5%. They got to like 5.1 and then quickly came down. They never really went above 5%. And why did I make that call? Because if you look at the way that Jerome Powell's communicating, the way that, and then you look at the way the, the actual notes from their minutes, you go back to August 2020. A lot of people don't realize August 2020 was a big, huge deal. The Jackson, Wyoming, the Jackson Hole Summit where they changed the way they look at data. So up until August, 2020, they tried to guide the markets. They said, hey, we're going this route. We don't like it going this direction any further. We're gonna change. And the markets still think that that's how they act. Mm. Like the Fed is now guiding our market. But in August, 2020, they said, hey, all of 2019, we did this year long research on how we've implemented policy over the past hundred years. And what we found is it's better to actually look at data and then make reactive decisions than it is to guide data and try and push the economy the way it's going. And I guess because we were in the middle of COVID, no one just pays attention to that. Mm -hmm. But if you go back to that date and then you look at what they've done since, it's very clear what they're going to do. When you're saying they're guiding data, like what do you, 
mean? Yeah, uh, so think of their target 2%, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, all the markets for six plus months now, time to cut, time to cut, time to cut. And why are they doing that? Because they're getting close to their target. But the in, in the past Fed before August of 2020, the past Fed would be, yeah, we could probably really, you know, we don't need a pot. We can just, they would guide it. Hey, we're getting there. Now we can re- release the brakes. We can change policy. So pre-August 2020, that would be their take. Now it's like, hey, we're not there. And the other statement they made at that time was, we'll also let the economy run hot. So in August 2020, we had 20 years of no inflation or very, very little inflation. And so when they announced this change, the example they used was, we're our targets 2% interest or inflation, 2% inflation, but we've had this long period of time with less than 2%. So we'll allow a period of time greater than 2%. So So now relay that comment from August 2020 to where we're at now. They were going to let it average out. Yes. So rather than just looking at it each meeting to meeting, we're going to let it run hot for a little while and just say, well, we we were running cool for a bit. Now we can run hot for a bit and it all averages out. Right. You say we had less than 2% for 20 years? Yeah. For a long period of time. Yeah. And I don't want to get into this. That's one of the- And they they changed their metrics and measurements on that during that 20 years as well. How you measure inflation and is it consumer prices? Is it consumer expenditures? Is it produce- like? So I don't want to kind of get into that number, but they have what they like, the gauge that they like, the consumer, the CPE. PCE. PCE. But here's the scenario. If you overlay what they said in August 2020, my opinion is they want to get inflation down under 2% for a period of time. To get their average. Exactly. And we're not there yet. Which they told us four years ago they wanted to do. And the Fed has two mandates. It's price controls. We don't want inflation getting out of control. And then it's maximum employment. So- as a market investor, why would I think the Fed is going to cut rates when we have a historically low unemployment rate and we don't have inflation under 2%? It's very clear to me they're not going to cut. And so what happened was in in November of this year, just like November of last year, not this year, but 23, just like in November 2022, the bond market started improving. Inflation reports started getting better. Oh my gosh, this is working. Job job reports started kind of slowing down. Oh my gosh, this is what we need. We're going to change. They're going to cut rates. They're going to cut rates. Nope. Because we're not. Yes, it's getting where they want, but we're not there yet. So Huge bond rally early December, huge market rally early December. I think it was December 3rd or December 7th. I post on Facebook. Anyone betting that they're going to cut rates before June is stupid. And what? So the in. Um, I made a bet. What's that? It's a good fucking bet. I made a bet with somebody else that it wasn't going to happen before June. June. I did not see that post though. Really? That just made me really happy. That's why it I should make you that. happy. Yeah. So, and then what happened? And then, you know, they had their meeting, Powell came out and the day before, before he came out, I was like, Hey, really good day for Powell. He gets to try and push back the talk on rate cuts while then saying, Hey, inflation's going the direction we want. So like, how do you say we're about to put the brakes on, but we're not ready to cut. So that's what I expected him to do. And he came out and the markets completely misread what he had said. So he came out, had the meeting, he came out and the market's takeaway was they're done raising. Now they're cutting. And when you actually the following week read their meeting minutes, didn't they, say that anywhere. They didn't say that anywhere. And that's it, headlines go with this. They just take it like now they're changing. Well, no, you read the actual. So you got to listen to their comments. You got to actually li- read their documents and you can kind of put these things together. So then right at the end of the new year. Now the stock market starts kind of losing, mortgage rates start going up, bond yields start going up. Why? 
because they completely misread the Fed in December. So now they got to backtrack in early January. And then now we have another Fed meeting kind of coming up. And um, so Powell's on 60 minutes and he's pushed back. And now he has to push back even harder against a March cut because the markets just feel like this thing's going to happen. That's not. Yeah, because if to your point in guiding, you know, instead of instead of guiding the markets, they wanted to react. What's interesting now is that it's not their moves that actually are changing the market. It's their words. Yes. And so I've said all along, we don't really need them to cut rates. We just need to tell them they're done raising mm-hmm. rates because mm-hmm. what's when, in my opinion, what, what paused the entire, all the transaction volume in commercial paused because everyone says, well, I'm going to go into a deal. I don't even know what my rate's going to be in three months, let alone if I can refinance this in a year, two years or whatever. And if rates have the risk of running as hot as 10, 15, 20%, we're going back to the 70s again, then there's too much risk. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and wait. So we just need to know that we're making progress and they need to say, okay, we're done for now. But what's interesting, at some point, they're already talking about how they'll do some rate cuts this year. Mm -hmm. And the market has, I think, one and a half points baked in and and the Fed is saying that the dot plot's like, 0.75 0.75 or whatever. So the market's baking in twice as much as what the Fed yes. says that they're going to do. So to your answer, the market is really, really wants them to cut rates. Mm-hmm. But what will happen as soon as they get too dovish and they start talking about cutting rates, before they even cut them, all the markets are going to react and they're going to actually start unwinding some of the work that the Fed has done. And I think that's why yes. their job is so hard right now. And and they want to say like, yeah, of course we want to cut rates and we will, but they can't really just come out and say it or it'll screw everything up. Yeah. The analogy I've been using for this is like the markets are like the little kid who wants to go outside and the Fed is like the parents that are inside like, hey, it's been raining. And the kid's like, oh, the clouds are gone and the sun's coming out. And the parents are like, look at those dark clouds back there. Right. And so they just want to go out and play. And they're like, we can't let you play yet. It's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the article, did they not say they're going to cut by 150 points over by the end of 2025 from the market has been that's in. Yes. Yeah. I think that's post, Mike's whole point. Yes. That, exactly. Yeah, which is why I want to. I read that as Jerome Powell said. <laughs> no. Well, that's the most people do. Yeah. I and that's. I don't know how to read, I guess. So <laughs> I, there was two really huge things that came out um, last week. And that was, they did say we're done raising. So that that's important. That's what we've been waiting for. I think super important. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's the now we now we've now pivoted. Now we can get back to doing deals. We have Mm -hmm. now pivoted. We now know that we are in the holding pattern. What have they said the entire time? We want rate. We want to raise them and we want to hold them. We want higher rates for longer. Now we know that they have hit higher rates. They're no longer going beyond that. And you look back, well, when was their last increase? Was it June or July? Something like that. Four or five months ago. Yeah. So we are already four or five months into the for longer, mm-hmm. higher for longer. And then the other thing that they came out and said is we're done. We're no longer concerned about wanting to see a reduction in un- or an increase in unemployment. They're no longer concerned about the job market. So that was the thing of all of 2023 was inflation was going the, the direction they wanted, but the job market wasn't. The economy was so resilient, the jobs not getting enough jobless claims and we're having too many um, new jobs reports. 
So now, and so 2023 was focused on jobs and because they, all the jobs reports for the most part were really good. There's no reason to not even to pause. There's actually reason to increase. And so that goes back to like May and June and July, those last kind of, there's a lot of, are they going to pause? Are they going to increase? There really was reasons because of the job market to increase. And so what they said last week was we're no longer looking at the job market We're we're we feel like policy is sufficiently tight can't remember the word they use that they like to use restrictive Restrictive. yeah so they like to use it's sufficiently restrictive to get us to our target goal on inflation meaning we're no longer going to look at the jobs reports so this is really good because now jobs reports can be really really strong and we know the fed won't increase so now the fed's really just looking at inflation but remember our mortgage rates don't act off the Fed, they act off the bond market. The bond market still doesn't like the strong job re- jobs reports. And so we have this scenario where the bond market's kind of 3.8 to 4.1, just is kind of laid in there. And so, it's still- t- Tell us what drives the bond market if it's not. So the Fed has a couple of levers they can pull. They can, they can do uh, their interest rates up and down, which is really the overnight lending rate between banks. I don't even quite understand that. The other one is quantitative tightening or easing. So they can basically pull their chips off the table in a sense in the fact that they're no longer a buyer competing in that secondary market for mortgage-backed securities or whatever they're buying. So they they manipulate the market. And I guess I would be interested to know your opinion as to which affects actual borrowing rates more, the quantitative tightening easing or the overnight borrowing rate and how that actually affects interest rates. And then also, how what is the bond market looking at and what drives that if it's not not the yep. moves that the Fed yeah, is Yeah, my making. favorite analogy, we've all built fucking Kia furniture, right? Yeah. Ikea, <laughs> I was just there. Oh my God, I so hate the it. The analogy I use is interest rates are like that shitty little tool that they put in the package. <laughs> and then the, their bond buying program, quantitative, their balance sheet, that's like you go get your power drill. Okay. And so that's the- The, when the real tool. The real tool. And nobody really talks about it all that much. Yeah, because people don't get it. They don't understand. And we hear like bond, mar- bond money is a smart money. You, you know, like stock markets, the risky money, that's the equities, mm-hmm. that's- that's where you get aggressive. You take on risk. Bond markets, it, it's smart money. That's where macro money parks itself, right? It's the biggest amount of money moves in and out. It moves in and out slowly. And the majority of until up until 2008, 95% of the bond activity was institutions and governments buying bonds. And then 2008, now the Fed got involved, right? And so the Fed is not a lender. They don't make bond buying decisions based on inflation, inflation adjusted return. They make bond buying decisions based on how much money we want in the economy or out of the economy. So they don't treat bonds as a normal investor would. And so the biggest change that we've seen in the bond market since March 2022 is the Fed pared back. You know, they went from 120 billion in buying in bonds to 90 and then now they're down to no, they went to 75. 85 now they're 40 whatever it is so you paired by 45 they paired so they're still buying bonds they're still actually pumping money into the economy they're just letting them mature faster than they're actually let's go down a rabbit hole real quick yeah the way i'm imagining this is nobody else can print money but the fed Mm -hmm. so when they're buying something they're not buying it like you said based on investment metrics they're not saying i need this particular return on my capital it feels as if they're just printing money and then giving it to the government in the form of a bond and in a form of a loan with just, it's just an IOU. It's just like they're creating money out of thin air and they're loaning it to the government. 
Yeah. Is that what's happening? Yeah. And so you think of it this way, they actually kind of have two mandates because they have to be the bank for the government. So there's the government activity dictates some of what they do, and then they have to monitor the amount of money in the economy. So they have to buy America's debt kind of no matter what. So that's how America creates money is, hey, we need to spend. We're going to create these promissory notes. We're going to go take them to the market and sell them. And so when the Fed's buying, they're a big buyer. Our cost of debt goes down because there's more demand. And so now they're not there. Now they're selling them back to normal investors. And so there's this really complicated market of government creates a promissory note. Investors buy that note. The Fed buys the note back from the investors. And then the Fed does a repurchase market to then go borrow money against the notes that they bought to then go buy more notes from the government. So there's this big, and this is where I argue with ChatGPT that (laughs) (laughs) if there isn't a repurchase market out there, meaning the, the Fed is not leveraging their bonds to get cash to buy more bonds, then when they let their bonds mature, they're pulling money in the economy. But if their bonds are maturing and then they're just paying off a repurchase order, that's just, it's a really complicated mess. But to answer your question, when it comes down to interest rates and why does the job market matter now is the job market only mattered to the Fed on what's our economic policy? What are we doing with rates in order? Are we speeding up the economy or slowing down the economy? The bond market actually looks at it as a lender, meaning I want an inflation adjusted return. And so the Fed may not be concerned about inflation right now because they have it going the right direction. So they're not concerned about the job market because they've got their tool working. But the bond market's different. They're like, well, robust jobs are, you know, because that creates inflation. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm a lender, but we're really- More, More people with money. Yeah. So there's more people buying the same goods and services. It's going to make the the price go up, Correct. regardless of what the Fed is. Yeah, and then the other complicated action of the bond market, when you consider the Fed's buying activity, is before 2008, investors just really invested in the bond market for yield. They go buy a note, they get a return on that note. The note would mature. They'd reinvest that money. Well, now with the Fed, they can just go buy a note and then the Fed starts buying and the value of that note goes Goes up. up. And now they sell and they create capital gains. And so you do have this trading activity that's gains related as well as trading activity that's yield related. And so you have to kind of look at the market, whereas, okay, is it moving because of gains related activity? Is it moving because of yield related activity? A lot of that stuff happens at the end of the year. I think a lot of it, the bomb, the 10 year yield getting up to 5%. The reason it kind of started, there is now trades being made for capital gains because they know the value, you know, hey, well, we the now- prices are down. So if the yield is high, the price of that bond exactly. is lower. Yeah. So now the Fed backs away and yeah. now we don't have this artificially driven market. Yeah. And now you have to let the free market could decide what that bond is worth yep. and the value of that bond drops down, creating the higher yield, creating the higher borrowing rates yep. and the higher mortgage rates when we go buy a property. Yeah. And so then what that creates then is it kind of creates this channel of where bond yields should be outside of the capital gains conundrum. Does that kind of make mm-hmm. sense? And I think one way that this showed up is as inflation reports started getting really good and the jobs the jobs reports weren't super, they were good, but they weren't super strong. Like, well, that's what we want. Mm-hmm. And you saw bond yields before the end of the year get down to like 3.7%. And, and, and before they got down to 3%, I, I, I'd made a strong, strong jobs report come out and, it, and they were at 4%. Strong jobs report came out. I think this was November, December. Um, 
and the yields didn't turn change much on the 10 year. And I was like, did the is the bond market just kind of okay now, given where inflation's at, given where the job market's at, and given it yields at four percent, it seems like we've set equilibrium. Yes, it feels like we have this level of if we kind of keep here, we shouldn't expect bond yields, the ten-year yield, getting more than seven, uh, four, four to four point one, kind of in that three point nine to four point one range, four point one range. So that tells you if mortgage spreads are three percent, we're going to be in the six point nine to seven point one. Rates just kind of went back to seven percent. And what we saw at the end of the year was those spreads actually came down to like two point seven five. We got up to three. We stayed around three. They kind of finally the, the risk spread starts to shrink a little. The risk spread starts to shrink and from the secondary market. Do you think that'll continue to shrink now that the Fed has said, "Hey, we're done yeah. raising rates. We feel like things are good. This is a really now we can stuff. now we can." To me, I feel like that could shrink pretty quickly, but everybody's hanging on to the profit. It could. Yeah. So it's now it's jobs related, right? So the Fed doesn't care about jobs anymore. We're pretty good. We're but the bond the lenders do, right? Because the Fed's like, hey, I'm not too concerned about inflation, but lenders are always concerned about inflation because that's the only way to create an inflation adjusted return. And so when we see those strong prints, the yields went back up mm-hmm. on the, not just the, the yields and the spreads went Because of the hot jobs yeah. print. So that's why yeah. we interest rates went from above seven down to 6.5 back up to seven is because not only is the 10 year moving, but the yields are moving. And until we actually see a slowdown in jobs, I don't. So here's where I was at last year. And here's where I was at kind of the end of last year and the beginning of this year was, hey, our affordability, if you look at affordability, we're teetering on that level of being able to create sales volume. And so uh, rates were low beginning of 2023. We had a good sales season from January to March, May-ish, right? We had the banking crisis, kind of kept rates, yields down a little bit, rates better. And then we, the summer went along and the Fed kind of started talking hawkish again. Rates got back up and it slowed back down. And so it created this buying window this fall. Just like we had a buying window in the fall of 2022, we had a buying window in the fall and early winter of 2023. We're kind of set up again for that because if jobs stay strong and even though the Fed doesn't and then the Fed's like, hey, inflation hasn't come down, we haven't cut or they're not even really going to start to cut until June. Well, our buying season, our selling season is done. Right, our selling season's done by the time they start cutting rates. So it's quite possible we see six and a half to seven percent rates through our selling season, the spring, and then getting into. And you're talking a residential, residential borrowing, one to four. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's the the world I like to reside in because it's you stack off of that. Um, So we could get in a scenario where we made it through the selling season. The desire to buy is again lower. Interest rates are six and a half to seven percent. Values are stagnant. And it could be a scenario where, you know, leading into this year, I was expecting, well, kind of rates will come down mid-year. We'll get into that 5.75 by the end of the year and the market's going to be golden. That's where we want. That's values won't go too crazy. Volume will be there. That's what we want to see. But if rates don't get down there, we're not going to see that volume. Uh, Okay. Let me ask you another question. This is a very interesting topic. So macro, from a macro level, they're looking at jobs print. They're looking at inflation readings and all these things. But on a Main Street level, if you look at uh, the excess savings that we built up during during all the COVID stimulus, we print six trillion dollars. Everybody's sitting on more money than they've ever had. Right, that's all gone. That savings, a lot of it has disappeared. No, 
No. This is the, the, so this is the headline bullshit that gets thrown out, okay. there, right? So our savings rate is now historically low. But what is a savings rate? It's how much money uh, how the average person has sitting in what is their someone, savings account? No. That's check, that's deposits. Oh, so it's, it's the current savings rate. So they've already saved all the money, so they don't have to- No, save savings rate is how much yeah. of your income Percentage. are you saving? Yeah, yeah. So if oh, your saving expense rate- Expense versus income. Yeah, well, yeah. So if your savings rate is down, you're still saving. Okay. So you, savings so, rate isn't negative. Okay. So then let's talk about debt because they're yeah. now the headlines again say that um, credit card balances are at yeah. all time highs. Yeah. So I did, I went over this in my yearly forecast. This is fucking excellent. So 90% of America has less than $5,000 of credit limit. Okay. So most of America doesn't have credit or much of it. Like then, Dane. Yeah. Top 10% are actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 6,500. And then, then like, um, 90% of people are have 95% of their credit used up. And if you kind of start doing these math and you look at the graphs, yeah, the prototypical borrower who doesn't have a lot of credit card- Has them tapped out. Well, no, that's how they live. They tap out oh, the credit cards. Pay it off. They pay it down as far as they can. And they tap they, it so they live in that 90 to 95% yeah. yeah. world. It's their cushion. Right. And so we're trying to base this economic condition based off the smallest part of our economy. 75% of people have over seven, like have another 30% of their credit limits. So people still have credit limits left. Now, I do think that our credit limits are overinflated because there's so much money in the economy that banks haven't started pulling lines of credit yet. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like there's no real need for them. And and now we're going to kind of start seeing that where, where the banks start pulling away, start closing lines of yeah. credit. And, and like, if you've got like in the 08 crash, these guys are too young to remember it. Yeah. The bank, you, you've had a credit line, you've had this and that and everybody, everybody's happy. And then one day they just call you and say, sorry, we're shutting it down. Yeah. It's over. So that's where I start. So what are the indicators where you start getting worried? That's an area where they start now shutting down. So like if you're 95%, uh, the number of people in your 95% of credit used go to 105% mm -hmm. of credit used because now their balance has been used. Now they got fees and now they have no liquidity because that's how they live month to month. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now these are more like your C-class tenant. These are your renters. They're not your owners. Um, the other thing, if you look at the, um, the graphs, you see the deposits, right? So you see COVID, the amount of deposits, they go down significantly. They go up. And then our deposits are going down. But if you go back to 2008, like that the trend, trend line, line. we yeah. just have come back yeah. to the trend yeah. line. So you can cut again, statistics are bullshit. It's how you frame them. So if you look at from after COVID to now, it looks terrible. But yeah. If you go back 20 yeah. years, we're just in yeah. line. It makes a better headline. Yeah. So, but I'm also <laughs> not saying this isn't something we should be concerned about because people tapping out their consumers, tapping out their debt and, and part of the uh, whole holiday season spending was just <laughs> buy now, pay later programs. Yep. It's just debt oriented. Yep. Right. And so, yes, that is a huge, huge, huge concern at some point. So let's go next level. Yeah. The, the Fed prints $6 trillion. Some say that prior to COVID, if you have $100 in your pocket right now, 40 of those dollars didn't exist prior to COVID. That money co goes in. And if you, if you follow M1 and M2 money supply, they've, they've sort of backed off. Like we hit 22 trillion in circulation or whatever. Now we're down to 20 trillion, whatever the number. So they went up 40%. They went back down 10%. So kindergarten question, where does that money go? Like first off, 
the people that I read and listen to say that that money hasn't even hit yet. It's not even in, it's not, hasn't really hit the ground level. Like that money's been printed. It's, it has to filter through all the government programs and all of whatever that's going to come from. The money that came through COVID related, like unemployment uh, benefits that came, the extra 300 a week and all that, that hit. But that was actually a very small percentage of the six trillion that they printed. Yep. So where does the rest of that money filter from? Where does it go? How long does it take? And does that then run the risk in my mind that we end up back in an inflationary period because too much money hits the street? At yeah. The and this is the exact reason why I think the Fed would rather break the economy than not. Because they know that money hasn't hit yet. They don't, they don't, I mean, they, they run a couple of risks. If they move too quick, they may have to go yeah, back. And this is the counter discussion to inflation's going the direction we go. It's got rent still hasn't factored into it. We know inflation's coming down. And I think Stanford or one of those colleges, Yale, they've got their own inflation report that shows it at like 1% right now because they factor in all these other scenarios. So if we know there's a delayed print on inflation, yada, 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 we know inflation's coming down. Why are they not lowering rates? Well, to your point, they we use the wrong term print. We create credit you create a credit facility, those credit facilities have to get spent down. And so what you're saying is there's credit facilities that have been created that still haven't been spent down. One really good example of that is the ERC, the Employee Retention Credit. So that was the most abused benefit of COVID, the Employee Retention Credit. So what is it that they just came out with now? All the new uh, bonus depreciation. So the new tax bill they're creating right now creates you know 100% bonus, bonus depreciation. depreciation yeah. That's being paid for with the employee retention credit, right? So that's money that's there that they said, we're cutting this facility off because people are abusing it. Yet we printed that money, aka we created that. Now we're going to spend it somewhere else. Now we're going to spend it somewhere else. So we feel like we still want that money to go in the economy. We just don't want it to go through this facility because it's being abused. So we're going to change the facility and let it enter the economy in a different way. Sounds like you're not getting your two million anymore. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't got it, you're done. Um, and and but the other the other thing we need to understand is the Fed can't spend money. All they can do is buy debt and they can invest, right? So they invest in debt. So what the Fed does is when the Fed prints money, aka creates credit, they just give it to people. So now businesses have better lines of credit to spur business. Asset investors have better debt to buy assets. And so when the Fed prints for stimulus to put money in the economy, assets go up because they can't give that money to Main Street. They give it to investors and businesses. And so business values go up, stock market goes up, um, more loans, more jobs, the economy goes off, and then asset values go up because that's where they're getting spent. They're getting spent into the economy. They're getting spent into the uh, assets. When you create a stimulus program, so again, now the government versus the Fed. So the Fed, that's just their activity. When the government says, ah, we need to give people $600 every single month, whatever, fuck, however much, that's the the government saying, we've created this policy, mm-hmm. whether you agree with it or not, Fed, you need to now bank this for us. Mm-hmm. And so they've said, we're going to give this money out. So they go create promissory notes, right? And so then this, the Fed, we have to monetize that debt. So now they have that money and then that money gets deposited in the Fed and then the, or no, that got, that money came through the actual um, treasury. So they create the notes, they sell it to the markets, they create the cash, the cash goes to the IRS and the IRS spends that money overnight. 
depositing it into our bank accounts. And then as consumers, we spend that money much, much faster than investors invest that money. So that's why a good portion or a portion of this, the the COVID stimulus has entered the economy and a portion hasn't. Do you have an uh, idea of about how much has been? I have no clue. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but there's still that risk. I mean- yeah. But to your point, these are credit facilities that they may cut off or redirect. So when they see something like ERC getting channeled into areas that they feel are not beneficial or don't serve the same purpose they created them for, yep. they say, okay, we're done. And now we're going to move that over here. And we think we can run them through these channels instead to help these folks to spur the economy the way that we want. Yeah. And then now you can use that information as an investor, right? So if the credit facility is ERC, well, that's money going into the economy, into businesses, into the stock market. If that funding gets moved to bonus depreciation, now that money is going to assets, into real estate. Right. And so if you know this is happening, you're like, well, I'm a stock investor. I'm pulling my money out of the stock market. I'm buying real estate. estate, Right. Because you just get ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. Which you should do anyway. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Trevor, did you get all your questions answered? I think so. So I I was trying to understand the mechanism, though, of like, okay, like let's picture our dollars that we're getting from the bank and how that goes to the Fed. So I really understand it. Explain that to me. Because you're talking about how they trade it, create the promissory note, but how do those actually, like I go to the bank and get a loan. How does that roll up? To the Fed. To the Fed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you go put a deposit in at your local bank Mm -hmm. and then the bank has their own reserves. Yeah. And then the, the bank that you deposited at has the same relationship with the federal bank. So a portion of your deposits on reserves now have to go to their deposit on a reserve. So I guess when, when they issue me a loan though, like I yeah. go get a commercial loan, then they're selling that, they're packaging it into bonds on the back end. Is that what you were saying? So I some, go, some I go, loans are sold that way, but not all. Yeah. yeah. And commercial loans even. That, that would be agency debt, right? F- Fannie and Freddie type. So that's why when you go to close one of these uh, apartment deals that you're going with agency debt, like they tell you when the closing date's going to be, not you tell them when the closing date's going to be because they're literally, you're signing and they're going out. It only takes a day or two and they go out and they sell your loan on Wall Street, I guess. And then that's, they fund the loan. And so, yeah, you're saying the bonds though are the package of mortgage-backed securities basically. Yeah. Mortgage-backed securities are a form of bond. Of a form of bond. Yes. Yeah. But you're not creating that same bond with all this commercial debt also. No. Yeah. So think of it this way. The commercial debt is created at the individual transaction level, and then it's packaged Packaged together together. to create the bond. Okay. And then they're buying it. So then you have more money. CMBS market. So you have the mortgage-backed security and the commercial mortgage-backed security markets. And I don't know a lot about these secondary markets, but that's what we were sort of alluding to with the Fed um, taking these things off of their balance sheet and putting them on their balance sheet. When they step in and they just say, we don't care if there's investors or not, we're going to buy them all. It changes the value of that that bond. And when they decide we're not going to come in and artificially inflate that market, we're going to pull our chips off of the table. Now the free market has to decide what that mortgage-backed security yeah, is worth. Yeah, so you're saying that's the quantitative easing and that's how like the volume, dollar volume they are going to buy or not buy and hold of these. So they're in QT now. They call it QT, quantitative tightening. Mm-hmm. So they're not So they're take, they're letting, they're, it's not that they're not buying them. Well, they're not buying they're them, buying the but they're also letting their current ones roll off their balance yeah, sheet. Yeah, so they're essentially right now a net seller of mortgage-backed securities, okay. meaning they're no longer buying any more mortgage-backed securities, but some are maturing and gaining paid off. So the their balance sheet in regards to mortgage-backed security is shrinking. 
And so now because an investor has to buy it, they are only willing to buy it at a higher rate yes. than the Fed is. So that's why spreads went from one and a half percent to three percent. Because you're gonna do your metrics on your returns different than the Fed is yeah. on money they're printing for an IOU, right? <laughs> it's and, and it's a different game. Where, and that's where the mortgage spreads. So when we talk about the residential rates, those mortgage spreads have no incentive to decline with a strong mar a strong jobs market and a fed that's when they don't want to be in the mortgage market because of the risk of inflation going up yes. or because of the risk of the of the bond uh going up the bond um, yield going up because the risk their inflate their inflation adjusted risk is still a tough thing to calculate because one of the reasons why we're real estate investors is we borrow money at today's the value of today's dollar and then we wait a long time and we pay it back later. And so you borrow a million dollars today. And when you pay that million dollars back in 10 or 20 or 30 years, it's not a million dollars anymore. Yeah. And so the bank has to look at that in reverse and go, we need to make a certain return on this. And if they're, that's why they want to give you shorter term money. Yep. They'd rather do a three-year, five-year loan because the crystal ball, they know they can kind of gauge inflationary risk over that next three to five years. Once you start going out further and further, that's harder, which is why you end up, you know, when, you, when you're in a residential loan, you have 30 years. So when you're trying to bake in 30-year predictions on inflation, what's going to happen? You know that, that that money you're getting paid back in 30 years is is inflation adjusted is not yep. and anywhere that's why, close to what you lent out. That's why commercial lengths are 10 years and residential are 30 years because of the level of government involvement in residential side versus the commercial side. So the government is the only one buying those residential loans then really, right? Because who, who else is buying those? No, no, no. So insurance, insurance, they still pensions. Yeah. So they're the only ones buying them. And that's the problem. That's not the problem. That's why spreads are the way they are, which is what makes mortgage rates they are. And so that's the problem is like when the Fed changed actions in March of 2022, they increased their activity, increased, increased the yield on the 10 year. And then their pulling away from buying increased the spread. And so it wasn't just mortgage rates going up by the 10 year. It was mortgage rates going up for the 10 year and the spread. So it was a double dip. And that's why real estate's in a recession and the rest of the economy's not is because they got double dipped. The rest of the economy got hit once just by the Fed's activity. Real estate got hit, hit by twice. the Fed's activity and the mortgage spread activity, the secondary market activity. So you, if you had a crystal ball, which it sounds like you do because you tell the Fed to follow your uh, <laughs> Facebook page. Um, well, no, the Fed, yeah. So they need to start creating a special new construction bond mortgage-backed security facility to keep us from being in a big problem 10 years from now. With no inventory. With no inventory. Because well, we're just going down that road. Which, which another podcast seems episode. to perpetuate itself. Yes. That's kind of a- We're never going to fix it if they don't actually figure this shit out. Yeah, and they're not going to. No. So we're never going to fix it. So yeah. <laughs> that's why we keep keep buying buildings. Well, So yeah, my question is like, how? so having all this information, what do you do with it? How did it affect your- investing? Yeah, well, that's a good- So I ramped up buying significantly from- September 22 to December 2022. And that whole buying opportunity is, hey, we're just buying rentals. And then in early 2023, fuck that. We're selling all those rentals. We're taking our tax hit because we saw another buying window 
coming again the same fall. So it was sell everything in the spring of 2023 so that you can buy stuff again in the fall of 2020. Were you actually selling your your 2022 product that you bought? You yeah, to capital later. gains. And that was all value add stuff. Though, yeah, right? all value. So okay. there's significant capital gains. And it's just selling that asset and paying the taxes is a lot more. It's the velocity behind the money. So there's the amount of money. There's the speed of money. And um, I've had the pleasure of talking to so many people who have bought real estate over decades of period of time. The number one regret, not trading enough. Like that one, and there's two avatars of investors in the Portland area that I think of. There's the one guy, Joe, that everyone knows that owns all the apartments, that has the biggest nonprofit fund and all that stuff. And then I know his friends. And the friends are like, never increase rent, slumlord, never make improvements, yada, yada. Joe's like, trade everything. He's a slumlord. He has his slumlord properties. He has his new construction properties. He has his commercials warehouse, like everything. It's every asset class. And, and some of those, he has those strategies of moving money. Some of them, he's a slumlord based on just trying to keep rents low. And so what I've learned and what I appreciate now, and actually I went to a conference of a, like a business coach, a mindset conference. And one thing I took away from that was I was not aggressive enough with my portfolio because I missed out on the speed of money and I don't want to make that mistake again. And so when you factor in your tax hit versus the gains you can take and now put those gains back in and speed that up, there's just a better return there. Can't you, I mean, doesn't the tax hit almost like negate it if you were to just cash out refi at that point? Aren't you basically going to have and and some of them we did. The problem is, is if you cash out refi when interest rates are eight percent on a DSCR, yeah, you don't want it. You got two hundred, three hundred grand of equity in it. If you started with a rental, though, you could have done some ten thirty one if you didn't want to take the tax hit. Yeah, you can do an extenuate if you didn't hold it for long enough. You can say the plan. And I've done this before in a ten thirty one, or I have ten thirty one six months after acquisition because you held it in two tax years. No, the intent was to buy it for this purpose, and code changed that killed the metrics on that purpose, so So, it justified. But you had a depreciation schedule going. You had a rent roll. You had the things that made it look like an investment, or no? No. I just had all of the due diligence. I had the drawings. I had, like, I paid, you know, to develop it this way. I permit application. And then they came back and said, oh, we have this new code. So when I was buying the property, this code didn't exist. When I went in for the, the permits, I this see. code exists. Okay. So my 1031 attorney was like, well, that'll qualify. Um, but we got way off topic. <laughs> <laughs> We're junkies. Uh, yeah. Well, so the speed of money, right? And so the plan is, and, and that's the whole thing is market conditions never change this fast. So why I love real estate is it's really, really slow. But we're in an area where market conditions are changing faster than they ever have ever than the, the, the life cycle of a real estate cycles, seven to eight years is what they teach you. We went through that in 12 months. Um, so we're seeing like, and I made this post recently is like, Hey, you know, 20 years from now, economists are going to be studying the phenomenon of COVID oh, yeah. and mortgage yeah. rates in the real estate. Absolutely. Market. But you could just listen to Zillow and they'll tell you our, our values are flat. Because <laughs> they are. I mean, you can look at, you know, values have kind of been flat over the past two years or so. Yeah, but it's gone like this, right? And so you use this, you get ahead of it. So when the market's going like this, so when it's going like this, you buy, right? And so, and then you change your strategy if it makes sense to change your strategy. Do you have any estimation of when you think this COVID, like, did it, did it throw us into this sort of quagmire that we're just going to keep spinning like this out of control? for a long period of time or do you feel like the post pandemic sort of hangover is going to come to an end at some point and we will actually enter into a more normal period again or is that, is no, that over? And it, I can't I don't think you can blame it on covid but I think covid was the the um 
the point of no return since 2008, right? So essentially our, I look at it as modern monetary policy took effect in 2008. And then COVID just took us so far down the road that we've used tools we never thought of using. And we saw how it worked out and we're addicted to it. And so it's not COVID and it's not monetary policy. It's also political will. Mm. So we're at a point where we have no political will. Left side's fighting with the right side harder than they've ever fought. We're like kind of on the brink of the civil war. We're never going to get an agreement that as a government, we're going to hunker down. Yeah. We're going to spend Do less. What it takes. We're going to tax more. Yeah. It's just never going to happen. Yeah. And so that means we're in this modern monetary policy world where it's purely based on debt and monetizing debt. And it's the metrics around how much debt do you create? How much does that debt cost? How much is income do you create? How much of that income is going to pay off your debt expenses? What And, and now it's this juggling of six month, one year, two year, 10 year, 30 year debt at the government level to try and get a blended rate. And, and like, this is the, this is the example I love in like the early on. And so we'll take 2021. So inflation was 8% for, we'll just say it averaged out at 8%. The government borrowing debt was like 2%. Mm-hmm. So, and they have 30 trillion in debt. Mm-hmm. So essentially they're saving 6% on 30 trillion. The government saved $1.8 trillion in the year of 2021 on their debt payments from financial repression. And so that's where economics changed for me when I understood financial repression. So as borrowers, we want to borrow today and pay it a cheaper dollar. So our lenders are, we're paying it off, right? Well, the opposite, so we're paying it off with less dollars. So we're not paying as much for that asset. The opposite is the saver who puts their money in the bank. Right. And there's almost a dollar dollar drawdown. The money we save on an inflation adjusted pay down is the exact loss the saver makes in their bank account. Mm -hmm. And so now you throw financial repression into that equation. Can't remember what we were talking about. What is financial repression? That's the phenomenon of explaining the how savers pay down our debt. Oh, I see. So so the kindergarten question of where does the money go? Like we're always wondering, like, yeah. well, there's there was money and now there's no money. Where did yeah. it go? And this is your answer. It's really a transfer of wealth. wealth. It's uh it's moving it from this this side yep. to this side. And the and so savers are losers. Yep. Not maybe personally, but just in the investment world, they're losing because yep. their dollars are depreciating in value faster than they're making interest payments yep. on, on that money just sitting there stagnant. So you never want to let money sit. It's kind of one thing you yep. talk about speed of money and movement of money and those sorts of things. So then on the flip side of that, if you're borrowing money, you're doing really, you're incentivized because this is the way our system is rigged. It's built this way. It's built for the people to borrow money and that's how you're going to, that's how you're going to make your money is by sitting on those investments and then the inflation, your asset values go up faster than, uh, you know, than it would be if you if you left your money sitting somewhere. So I always the, I always have to boil it down to kindergarten for me because I'm not I'm not as smart as you are. But I always say that they can print money faster than we can print buildings. <laughs> so so forget about parking the money and just go get your name on buildings. Well, and you touched on this. I made a post the other day, which is the whole wealth redistribute. Redistribute conversation. You don't have to, like, our banking system redistributes wealth for us. They take it from the middle class because the middle class put their money and save it in the bank. And then the bank gives it to the Fed and the Fed gives it to the government. 
And so then the government gives it to rich people through tax breaks and poor people through subsidies. And so we literally redistribute wealth from the middle class and give it to the rich and the poor wow. through our banking system. Wow. <laughs> we're going to we're going to stop right there. <laughs> This has been a this has been a great conversation about economics. Whoever knew economics was so exciting? Did you? Oh, dang, no, you were supposed it. to lead this whole podcast. Where were you, Mike? Let did it. You fall I asked the right question. Then you just. <laughs> oh, it's just. It was only yeah. one question. I did lead the. What podcast. A, what an interview yeah. you are. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, awesome. Well, this is anybody else have anything before we wrap this up? What 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 is this? Is this an episode or is that just this just a, a standalone one off? Yeah, segment. we'll post four B. This is uh, Macro Mike's bonus episode. Ma- Macro Mike talking about economics. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for joining us here on Deal Junkies. See you next time.